0: You are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland, Maine, and broadcast on 1310 AM Portland, streaming live each week at 11 AM on wlobradio.com and available via podcast on drlisa.org. Thank you for joining us. Here are some highlights from this week's
1: program. Whatever I do, I want it to be participating in, witnessing to, um, transmitting, receiving this love. That's it. Um, And seminary was how I learned to practice. What do you actually do to make it more likely that you will um, respond, notice, um, pay attention to, uh, not miss the love when it arrives? Um, or the love that's arriving constantly in various ways.
0: The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the generous support of the following sponsors. Maine Magazine, Tom Shepard of Hersey Gardner, Shepard & Eaton, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin at REMAX Heritage, Robin Hodgkin at Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine, the University of New England, UNE, and Akari.
2: Hello, this is Dr. Lisa Belial. Welcome to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast number 15, Celebration. This week on our show, we're doing things a little bit different in honor of this very special day that many people around the world are celebrating, whether Christian or not. Today is Christmas. Merry Christmas to those who are celebrating and to those who are not. We hope you have the most wonderful of days. As part of our celebration, we have a conversation with best-selling author Kate Braystrup, who wrote the book Here If You Need Me, and is also a chaplain with the Maine Warden Service. Following our conversation with Kate, we are treated to the musical, well, I don't have a better way to say this, wonderment of the group Mr. Moon, which includes three girls from the Palermo, Maine area, I don't have to go much further than that. You'll hear them, and you'll be amazed. And our give-back segment is Kurt Holmgren from La Root Cellar talking about the great work that that organization is doing to help people with various needs around the city of Portland. The show is a celebration for us as the team at the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. It's been 15 sessions of... Challenge and difficulty and joy and amazement and wonder and togetherness, all of which we're celebrating today and most days that we're together. We hope you enjoy this show. We are fortunate on the Dr. Lisa Radio Arm podcast to feature a segment called Wellness Innovations, sponsored by the University of New England. This week's wellness innovation is about the power of love. Recent studies discussed in Psychology Today comment on the power of love. Love is officially the best antidepressant. The less love you have, the more depressed you're likely to feel. According to Psychology Today, love is as critical for your mind and body as oxygen. It's not negotiable. The more connected you are, the healthier you will be both physically and emotionally. We at the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast see as one of our missions connecting one another and perpetuating this notion that love is the most powerful thing that people have to offer one another. Personally, professionally, within families and communities. We believe that love is maybe the best wellness innovation there is.
0: This segment has been brought to you by the University of New England, an innovative health sciences university grounded in the liberal arts. UNE is the number one educator of health professionals in Maine. Learn more about the University of New England at une.edu.
2: As part of our special holiday celebration show, we are interviewing best-selling author Kate Braestrupp. The daughter of a foreign correspondent, Kate Braestrupp spent her childhood in Algiers, New York City, Paris, Bangkok, Washington, D.C, and Maryland. She married James Andrew, Drew Griffith in 1985. Shortly after the birth of their first child in 1986, Griffith joined the Maine State Police and the family moved to Midcoast Maine. Trooper Griffith was killed in a car accident while on duty in 1996. Kate Braystrup was left a widowed mother of four children between the ages of three and nine. As it happened, Drew Griffith had spent the last year of his life thinking about researching and finally committing himself to becoming a Unitarian Universalist minister. Unwittingly, he had prepared the way for Kate Braystrup to recognize and develop her own vocation. She entered the Bangor Theological Seminary in 1997 and was ordained in 2004. In 2006, Braystrip married the artist Simon van der Ven. Between them, van der Ven and Braystrip have a total of six children, all of whom are now sauntering, tiptoeing, or being pushed up to and across the threshold of adulthood. Kate's latest book is entitled Beginner's Grace. In Beginner's Grace, bringing prayer to life, Braystrip explains what prayer is and explores the many ways that we can pray. A new kind of prayer book made for those who may not pray or even know how, Braystrip includes many examples of prayers to draw from and explains how and why the practice of prayer can open a space in our busy lives for mindfulness, gratitude, contentment, and compassion toward others. As a gift to our listeners, we've asked Kate to read an excerpt from her book, Beginner's
1: Grace. On a gloomy November day, not long ago, I drove to Augusta for an afternoon meeting. The low winter sun painted the passing landscape in a range of grays and sear browns, gray sky, brown trees. "'Brown fields, bleached cold, ochre by frost. "'In Maine, the cold and dark loom so absolutely "'that anyone with a human soul yearns for warmth and radiance. "'I felt my kinship with all the ancient peoples "'who regarded the increasingly brief and pallid visits "'of the winter sun with anxiety. "'I cranked up the heat, even though the air inside the car was warm.' I fretted about the cost of oil, oh God, and whether we would be able to cut and stack more firewood before the snows came. I planned some panicked knitting. Sweaters, socks, leg warmers, mittens, and hats. Maybe if I encase my loved ones entirely in wool, they will survive the winter. A farm borders the road in the town of Union, and as I passed the place, I glimpsed a scene with plenty of biblical antecedents. A flock of sheep abiding in a pasture. Some lay on the ground, padded from its stone-frozen hardness by thick fleece. Others clustered around a pile of hay. On the backs of some of the ewes, I noticed a streak of color, blue or red, as if a toddler had been let loose among them with a couple of giant crayons. Even before I had retrieved the memory of what those streaks of color signified, I felt the stirring of faith. Even before I'd figured the thing out, I was grinning at the darkening sky beyond my windshield. Yes, the winter has come, I thought, but spring, even in Maine, will surely follow. In the early 1970s, my parents bought a farm in the mountains of Maryland. There, my mother kept a flock of 60 sheep. Most were ewes of the breed known as Corradales, but Mom also kept two rams. One was a huge, solid, black-headed beast with a Roman nose and an imperturbable disposition. He was known simply as Big John. The other ram was a slight, skinny creature, a cheviot. He looked quite a lot like Gene Wilder with his wild, curly hair. He also had yellow eyes that didn't quite track. This animal mom christened sauerkraut. Sauerkraut spent most of his life hovering on the brink of a nervous breakdown, A laughing child, a duck's quack, even blowing leaves could startle sauerkraut into a frenzy of bleating and directionless stampede. Any more substantial threat, a barking dog or the arrival of the vet, would completely freak him out. If ever a sheep needed Valium, it was sauerkraut. Sauerkraut was also terrified of Big John, and this made for peace in the sheepfold for most of the year. Once a year, however, in late autumn, it would be time for the ewes to be bred. What signal passed from the ewes or from the gods of ovine reproduction into the twitching convolutions of sauerkraut's tiny brain, I do not know. But as the leaves changed color, the flame of some unnameable passion would flare up in sauerkraut's heart and a change would come over him. Instead of cowering in the corner of the sheepfold, trying to keep a couple dozen ewes between him and various imaginary dangers, sauerkraut would begin to strut and swagger about on his sprawny legs. If any blowing leaves or quacking ducks happened across his path, sauerkraut would snort in a threatening manner, then steal a quick glance at the ewes to see if they noticed his bravery. The ewes would go on clipping at the grass with their front teeth, paying no attention at all to sauerkraut. Their indifference would drive him to more dramatic displays of machismo. Lowering his head, he would charge at the dogs who ran, barking and laughing out of his way. And still the ewes grazed impervious. His soul on fire, sauerkraut would draw a deep and desperate breath, and from the recesses of his scrawny chest would come a prolonged, savage snort of challenge. Okay, it sounded more like a savage squeak of challenge, but no matter, it had the desired effect. Big John's black head would pop up above the woolly surface of the flock. He would turn his steely gaze in sauerkraut's direction and emit a more resonant answering snort, the ovine equivalent of, you talking to me, boy? Sauerkraut would reply with his shrill squeak, you bet I am, big nose. The flock of ewes would part like the Red Sea before the upraised hand of Moses, leaving the ground between the two rams clear and empty. A hush would fall over the sheepfold as ewes and lambs, ducks and dogs held their breath. Thud, thud. Big John would stomp his front feet upon the ground. Thud, thud, an answering signal from sauerkraut, whose expression, in far as sheep are capable of expression, was resolute. He would not yield. Big John lowered his massive head. Sauerkraut lowered his tiny head, his curls shivering in the wind. And then, as if on some silent signal sharp as a gunshot, the rams charged. Whomp! Their heads collided. I would love to be able to surprise you at this point, but I can't. The result was exactly as you would predict. Sauerkraut would promptly fall over onto his back, all four feet in the air, just like a cartoon, with little X's where his eyes should be. And Big John would amble away to resume eating, completely unaffected. The injury wasn't fatal. Sauerkraut would eventually open one eye and then the other, He'd get to his feet and totter about in a daze for several hours until his head cleared sufficiently to think about demanding a rematch. In truth, the flock of ewes was not a prize for Big John or Sauerkraut to win or lose by any display of foolishness or courage my mother goddess of the sheepfold would divide the flock into roughly equal groups of ewes one for sauerkraut whose curly wool was prized for spinning and one for the meaty big john both rams would be fitted out with harnesses that held chalk blue chalk for big john red for sauerkraut when a mating had been accomplished mom would see the mark on the ewes back and note the date in her record book Thus, she could roughly calculate when a birth might reasonably be expected. Lambs were the first sign of spring on our farm. They would be born scrawny and steaming into the freezing February nights. It always seemed impossible that anything so small and wet could survive birth into such conditions. Some didn't, and that was sad, but most of them did. They would stagger to their soft feet, find their mother's milk and drink, Soon enough, they would grow fat and silly, leaping in the warm air, nibbling experimentally at the new grass in the fresh spring light. Some would have a black face and a Roman nose. Others would have curly hair and yellow eyes that did not quite track. There were sheep in the fields in Union, Maine, and their wool bore a mark made with chalk. It was a sign, for those who know, of a coming miracle. Spring will come the green fields, and the dancing lambs, the lambs are already on their way, just as the bulbs and seeds that shall be flowers are already waiting in the soil, and the sap rests even now in the roots of the maple trees. With the winter solstice, the earth will tilt back into the center of that blessed cone of sunlight to warm a belly already pregnant with the new spring." My prayers cannot make the earth tilt or the sap rise, and neither the tilt nor the rise are mine. In the grand scheme of things, my faith is unnecessary, and so it comes to me as grace. Yes, wow, and thank you.
2: Thank you for that beautiful piece, talking about springtime and hope. You're welcome. Kate, I'm interested in talking to you about this idea of celebration. So you are the chaplain of the main Warden Service, and you see a lot of people in times that are not terribly celebratory, I would say. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But one of the pieces that you wrote in, in your newest book, Beginner's Grace, Bringing Prayer Into Your Life, um, is about laughter and prayer. One of your chapters is Laughter and Prayer. Uh, contrary to anything you might expect, people who have experienced the unexpected death of someone they love are capable of laughter, even quite soon after receiving the news. It is surprising and somehow heartening to see how quickly a person's sense of humor resurrects, declaring the underlying vitality and essential integrity of the bereaved. And do you remember the rest of this chapter? Do you remember the story oh, yeah. that you told? So oh,
1: yeah, tell, tell us that story. Um, well, it, it's... You mean the one about the woman whose husband had just died? Yes, right. This was a particularly nice example. It's not an unusual example, but um, it stuck with me. Um, There was a woman um, whose husband had just drowned and his body had just been recovered. The main warden service dive team had searched the bottom of the lake until they'd found him, and they'd recovered his body. And um, his widow and I went down to the shore to meet the boat and so that she could see his body and um, we were all standing around, and the wardens were all sort of standing around quietly and um, she had sort of gotten over the initial um, encounter with her husband's body, which is um always um, which is hard for other people to imagine um. She had very bravely and um, beautifully and, uh, encountered her husband's body for the first time. And I was standing there with her quietly, and, um, or at that point probably kneeling with her, and I said um, something actually kind of a little strange, which is I said, you know, he really looks beautiful. And she said, yeah, he was always pretty cute, but I never liked that shirt and she said, when she said it, she smiled. She didn't break out in laughter, but she smiled. It was a joke. Um, and um, it was the kind of joke that a wife gets to tell about her husband or a husband gets to tell about his wife. It was, a, it was the kind of joke that indicates their intimacy. Um, so it was funny um, and lovely. I mean, there was not, it was a loving joke. Um, you had a similar experience with your own husband, I believe. Um, you mean that he died? Yeah. Um, my first husband died, yes. Yeah. And um, one's sense of humor does, it isn't lost. You would think it would be, and it's not. It's still there.
3: I think that's an important thing to think about when we are it's Christmas today, and there are many of us celebrating, but, in the midst of that celebration, there are others who have very conflicted feelings about the holidays and the, that range of emotion. What do you say to somebody who might be facing today with some trepidation or sadness?
1: Well, I think what's hard about Christmas is that it's a day of obligatory happiness, you know yeah I mean there are all the Christmas ornaments say joy on them and um, and I've never been good at obligatory happiness I mean it's why I don't like my own birthday as you're supposed to be happy and I like Thanksgiving. You don't have to be happy. You just have to eat. You know, um, but um, one thing about Christmas that is striking to me actually um, is that it it is very much in the original Christmas story. It is very much a celebration in the midst of what you know is going to be a story with a, a sad ending, or at least a approximately sad ending, if not an ultimately sad ending, which is this little baby, when he grows up, is going to suffer and die at a young age. I mean, this is not going to be a long and happy life. This is going to be a hard life. And that Mary's maternity is going to be hard. And um, for me, that actually helps. Um, I actually find that um, it is easier for me to celebrate and to take joy when I understand this isn't... um, that this is something we do bravely and uh well with the knowledge that
3: it it's transient.
1: Yeah, with the knowledge that we're we're going to lose. And um and that really what what makes the original Christmas story um a beautiful story and one worth telling is, and um the whole Christian story worth telling is the only thing that makes it worth telling is that it's redeemed by love, um, so the love that is present in the stable, the love that we have for little babies, hopefully even poor babies and um, poor mothers um, the love that we share with each other is what redeems anything so to the extent that we can that I can stay there, I like christmas um, it it can be hard to maintain when it starts mm-hmm. to feel like. Um, pressure to be happy, which is different, I think, from joy. I want to
2: bring us back to your husband's death, because it's, I think, a fairly pivotal point in your life, professionally and personally. You became—you were an author prior to this. Yeah,
1: technically, yeah. (laughs) Yes,
2: but it was the book, Here If You Need Me, that described your experiences— in the face of his dying. You had four children. Yep. Yep. Tell, tell us about, just tell us the circumstances of this.
1: Um, he, he um, Drew was a main State trooper, and um, he died in the line of duty uh, in a car accident um, in 1996. And I had four, we had four small children. Um, I think my oldest was nine and my youngest was three. And um, he, w- you know, he was... Killed immediately. I mean, it was a um, instant, and um, so as it happens, I or not as it happens, as these things play out, I now work very much with people who've lost someone in very in circumstances that are similar enough, if only in that they're sudden, unexpected, and um, and very absolute. And and um, I came to it uh, out of the experience I had of Drew's death, which the kids and I talk about this a lot, actually. There's the experience of loss, which is enormous and um, excruciating. And But there is also always, whenever we talk about it, whenever I think about it, I think about the loss, and then I can't separate that from the love that we were immediately surrounded by and enfolded by. And it was that love that is the persistent quality and the persistent theme of the story. Uh, My story, I mean the actual story, not just the book. Um, And
2: this love actually brought you to a place where you really changed the focus of your life.
1: Yeah, I mean it it actually um, opened out the whole idea of what love is and and what its capabilities are. I I hadn't encountered a main community um, in this way before. We had lived in Maine for 11 years when he died, and full-time. I mean, I'd come up here in the summer when I was a kid. but um, And I'd never lived anywhere long enough before then to really experience community in, a, in the sense that we have it here in Maine. So for me, it was a huge experience of just how many people were willing to come and help us and do things for us and, and just know us and be with us. And that was what I wanted to stay part of. So when I talk about becoming a minister, I I know I wouldn't have become a minister had Drew not died, because he was going to become a minister. But um, it, it it can sound as though I wanted to, to go to seminary and be ordained and all of that, so as to kind of stay with Drew. And really, it was to stay with that love, that the grief does fade. And it gets softer over time. It's always there, but it gets softer. The love doesn't fade, it gets bigger. And whatever it was that um, allowed people to be present with us when Drew died, I knew how powerful that was. And so now I get to be part of that. Um, And in some sense represent that at other people's um, pivotal moments. And they're always pivotal moments.
3: The, The power that you felt of that love um it seems to, that it comes through in your books, so without saying that it's how is how has writing influenced your ministry and ministry influenced your writing because it seems to me that you have a a vast, vast congregation now <laughs> oh thank you yeah
1: uh, it's um I think that the experience of um Becoming a minister, um, the experience of that, which I date very much from when Drew died, right up through till now, I'm still becoming a minister. Um, that that experience made my writing better because now I know what I'm writing for. I, I'm not sure I'm a better writer than I was when I was 25. I, you know, I read the book that was published then, which we don't really have to discuss, but um, and you know, I was still a good writer. I just didn't know what I was writing about um, in some ultimate sense. And now I do. So um, I, I like the idea that uh, the books can serve as a window for other people. And, um, and I get a lot of feedback from writers that, I mean, from, I get a lot of feedback from readers that it has served to uh, help them, um, often in very concrete ways
0: we'll return to our interview after acknowledging the following generous sponsors akari salon an urban sanctuary of beauty wellness and style located on middle street in portland maine's old port follow them on facebook or go to akaribeauty.com to learn more about their new boutique and medispa and by robin hodgkin senior vice president and financial advisor at Morgan Stanley Smith Barney in Portland, Maine. For all your investment needs, call Robin Hodgkin at 207-771-0888. Investments and services are offered through Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Member SIPC. Do you
2: ever... Is there ever any pushback? I mean, this is Christmas, and, of course, it's about the birth of Christ. So there is this whole religious aspect of things, which is very different from spirituality. Do you ever get pushback because people might not consider themselves Christian when you show up at the scene of an
1: accident or when people read your book? Or they may think of themselves as more Christian than I am. Oh, that's interesting. One or the other. Um, Generally speaking, when I show up at a scene – The people who are, who are, um, that I'm there to be with aren't picky. Um, They are in a moment when they are um, blown open in a way that uh, I know vividly. And um, it is a huge honor to be allowed into their experience. And um, occasionally... I will hear, like, I remember the daughter of someone we were searching for um, saying to me, coming up to me, and I was in my uniform um, and was wearing a shirt with a collar, uh, a clerical collar. And um, she said, you know, I have no, essentially, I have no use for you. I'm an atheist. And I just popped the collar out of my shirt and put it in my pocket and said, okay, you know, do you have a bathroom? Do you have enough Have you eaten? So you got more practical with her. Well, I always am more practical. I mean, there's no separation between taking care of somebody spiritually and taking care of somebody physically, you know. Um, There's a saying, to a hungry man, food can all— I mean, to a hungry man, love must arrive in the form of bread. Um, To somebody who's, you know, out in the woods, standing next to a lake, waiting for the um, wardens to find the body of someone they love, you know, love comes in the form of lots of practical things. So part of my job is actually to transmit, um, well, first to let them know, we're actually here to help you. That's all we're here for. This is not actually, unless it's a crime scene, obviously. um, But we're just here to help you. This isn't, um, our power is only power for you. And, um... And also to try and give them as much power as possible. So a lot of that is information. What are we doing? Um, Why are the divers in the water? Why have they come out of the water? Why is the plane flying over there instead of over there? Uh, A lot of it is information that gets repeated again and again because we don't take in information very well when we're under stress. Um, And a lot of it is just being present with them. And whatever comes up, comes up. Um, Some people can use their own... Uh, religious beliefs um, and religious practices very effectively in those moments, in which case, great, I just support that. Uh, Some people don't have any, or the ones they have fail. And, um, and, And at that point, if I'm asked, I can respectfully suggest an alternative.
3: One aspect of wellness that is difficult for people to understand is spiritual enlightenment. And at the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour, what we try to convey is that it's about gaining power to what really moves you. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interested in what you said about finally knowing what you were writing about, because Mm -hmm. does that relate to your idea of wellness at all, personal wellness?
1: Oh, absolutely. But I think, um, I mean, I should make it, I, I don't, I mean, you probably define this all the time. I define spirituality as um, the sensation, the feeling, the experience of the numinous or of God or of vastness or whatever and religion um, as practice. It's what we do. And so I will sometimes say I'm religious but I'm not particularly spiritual (laughs) Um, because um, I don't. I feel like I don't really have the kinds of experiences that people talk about when they talk about religious experience. Actually, I probably do, but they're all connected with human beings. They're all connected with these moments with other people, when, um, like that woman by the lake, um, and telling that joke. That for me, that was this intense experience of you know, joy and a kind of pride in her. I was proud of her, you know, and um, and awe at her strength, and, um, you know, I just loved her. I was in love with her at that moment. I was just madly in love with her, because she was so amazing. And that, to me, I mean, that's as close as I get to a spiritual experience. So um, the religious part is, what do you actually practice? What do you do every day? And um, I like the idea of practice, because practice, what you practice is how you're going to play. So um, just like, Playing the piano or playing basketball or whatever, if you don't practice, then you're not going to be able to play and I think that when um, that one of the things I was doing when I went to seminary was learning how to practice now that I had sort of the target, the direction, you know whatever I whatever I do, I wanted to be participating in witnessing to um, transmitting receiving this love that's it um and seminary was how I learned to practice. You know, what do you actually do to make it more likely that you will um, respond, notice, um, pay attention to, uh, not miss the love when it arrives, um, or the love that's arriving constantly in various ways.
2: What would you consider to be the most transformative element of the Christian story?
1: Um, well, I'll tell you what isn't to me, um, which is um, the idea of heaven and hell. I, I personally find those um, almost useless. So uh, useless, and I, I'm always very practical and concrete. So that is irritating to many people <laughs> who are more spiritual than I am. Um, I mean, it's useless in the field. Uh, it's use. It's been useless to me, and it's um, surprisingly often of no comfort to grieving people. That and um, that their loved one is in heaven, and in fact, anxiety about what has happened to their loved one's spirit. Um, for instance, he wasn't born again. Does that mean he's in hell? Is a question that I've been given, and it's given in this kind of heartrending fear that um, someone they love has been is now suffering instead of um, not so, um, and that just strikes me as just useless. So. Um, those, I would say, would be the least useful and transformative. Um, the most useful and transformative is um, simply that that love comes to us and we are capable of participating in love in many more ways than we imagine. And what I like about the Christian story is, um, and I mean the whole, you know, from Jesus' birth to Jesus' death, is... Um, that the complexity of it and the difficulty of it is not shirked. it's hard and the more you know about the stories the parables for example you know the more complicated they get i mean they are not simple stories and at the same time um they are challenging us to say who who is the beloved in this and who is the lover in this who is being the most loving Um, in all of these different ways. And um, that, I think, is, um, well, of course I would think this since (laughs) it's all about love all the time, but uh, that to me is the most um, transformative, useful aspect of it.
2: We've just been talking with Kate Braystrup, best-selling author of Here If You Need Me, and most recently of Beginner's Grace, Bringing Prayer Into Your Life. Yeah, we've really enjoyed having this conversation with you on Christmas Day, Kate. Thanks for coming in.
1: Thank you. Merry Christmas.
2: As part of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast every week, we have a segment we call Main Magazine Minutes, which is hosted by Genevieve Morgan, the wellness editor for Maine Magazine.
3: Thanks, Dr. Lisa. Today on the Main Magazine Minutes in our special celebration show, we are really pleased to welcome to the studio the Mr. Moon Singers. Is that what you call yourselves? You guys can just Mr. Moon. (laughs) They are uh, three amazing girls who've come up with a unique sound, and I want them to introduce themselves. And tell us a little bit about yourselves, girls. You can go down the line.
4: Um, I'm Rachel Keys. How old are you? (laughs) Sorry, 19. 19. Yeah, um, just graduated. I just started playing some music with a friend, and it sort of went from there. And yeah, that's where I am. And, and you play
3: the mandolin and the guitar? <laughs> um,
4: mandolin, guitar, and bass mostly, but we don't have a bass with us today, so. I'm Hallie Pottle. I'm from Palermo. I'm 15 years old. I've been playing mandolin for about six years and kind of varied off and do other instruments as well. And, and don't you play the ukulele or somebody yeah. plays the ukulele? Yeah, I think all of us have kind of joked around on the ukulele a little bit.
3: <laughs> and that's your little sister sitting to your side, so what's your name?
5: Um, I'm Katie Pottle. I'm 13, and I don't really play. I just sing,
4: I guess. <laughs> she plays the ukulele. She's pretty oh, good at yeah. that. So Haley, what are you going to treat us to first? This song is called The Chain by Ingrid Michelson.
6: Shifting in my skin
4: Who Now Will Sing Me Lullabies by Kate Resby. guys actually wrote what's the name of it it's called these doll colors uh richie and i co-wrote it um i think last fall a couple of falls yeah, something ago like that we hallie came up with a verse and then i went to the bathroom and then i came back and i had another verse <laughs> and, and um <laughs> and then we worked on the third one and it was pretty fun and we changed it around a little bit and now katie sings it because now katie's in the band and
0: the following generous sponsor. Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine, maker of Dr. John's Brainola Cereal. Find them on the web at orthopedicspecialistsme.com
3: Well, I have to say that for such beautiful young girls, you sing songs with a lot of sophistication and meaning that I think everyone out there listening can relate to. So I'm really Impressed and so glad that you came to talk with us on this very special show, Dr. Lisa and I are really pleased to have you here on the Main Magazine minutes for our celebration show. What a celebration it's been! Yeah, thank good you. Very will much. you come back? Oh, absolutely.
4: <laughs> people can find you on Facebook. Yes. Yeah. www.facebook.com/hello.mister.moon. Very good. I'm sure lots of people will be looking out for you. Thank you. Cool.
3: And then I think you were going to take us out with a little Christmas music. I'd like to take this opportunity to wish you all a very Merry Christmas. The family at Maine Magazine also sends their best to you this holiday season. To pick up an issue of Maine Magazine, visit your local newsstand or subscribe at themainmag.com.
2: Welcome back. We hope you've been enjoying our special celebration show on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast for December 25th, 2011. I'm going to read for you today from my own blog, the Bountiful blog at bountiful-blog.com. This post is called Traditions Tweaked. When things shift within a family, thinking must shift as well. Traditions once held sacred may need reworking in order to accommodate the changes taking place. This is especially true of holiday-related traditions. Change is, of course, inevitable. Children leave the nest, adults grow older, grandchildren are born, grandparents pass away. And sometimes, the change process is accelerated in ways unanticipated. Relationships may end precipitously, finances may cause us to make difficult decisions, illness may occur. When these things happen, we may be thrown off balance. It may take some time to understand how we are feeling about a new situation. We may need to be more flexible with our, quote, sacred traditions. We also may need to give ourselves space to experience the welter of emotions that bubble forth as our traditions are tweaked to fit a new reality. This is made more complex when others are involved in our traditions, children and other family members, for example, just as we experience ambivalence over tweaked traditions, so might those around us. Remembering the reason for any given tradition might enable us to deal more effectively with this ambivalence. Remembering that the holidays are more about togetherness, whatever form that takes, than materialism. Remembering that simply being, rather than frenetically doing or spending, may give us pause and allow us to refocus. And first, simply being, quietly and mindfully with our own selves, rather than forcing ourselves to accommodate to difficult situations without forethought. If we can accept our feelings, new ways of thinking may emerge, and with this, new traditions, traditions tweaked, which will be all the more beautiful for having weathered the change. This blog post, and others like it, are available on bountiful-blog.com.
0: This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible by the support of the following generous sponsors. Thomas Shepard of Hersey Gardner Shepard & Eaton, an Ameriprise Platinum Financial Services practice in Yarmouth, Maine. Dreams can come true when you take the time to invest in yourself. Learn more at ameripriseadvisors.com and by Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth Maine honesty and integrity can take you home with Remax Heritage it's your move learn more at rheritage.com
2: Jen, every week, as you know, we do this give back segment, which some people have wondered why, where, what kind of a place does this have in a quote-unquote health and wellness show? And I feel really strongly that giving back is an important way to maintain health and wellness. So today we have Kurt Holmgram from the Root Cellar in to talk to us about how his organization is giving back to the community. So hi, Kurt. Hi, how are you? Kurt is from Minneapolis, Minnesota. He came to Maine in 1984 and has been the director of the Portland Root Cellar for six years. He volunteered there for three years, has been married for 28 years, and has two grown children. He attends the East Point Christian Church. Kurt, it's great to have you.
7: Well, thanks for having me. And Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you as well.
2: A couple of weeks ago we had on the show Angie Arndt from um, CHIME, the Chaplaincy Institute of Maine, and she talked about the spirituality from a more of a non-denominational standpoint. As you were saying when we first came in, this is, the Root Cellar is pretty Christian.
7: Definitely uh, faith-based, multi-denominational again, but definitely Christian. Uh, We try to bring, um, well, it's really supported by churches from all throughout greater Portland um, we have about 200 volunteers, uh, in one way or another, that come in. And our our support, as a matter of fact, is is from those places. About 85% of it is from individuals that just wanna wanna see this east end of Portland transformed, and so they support that and with their, their giving, but also their time as well. And then we have a small amount, we have a number of churches that just have us in their missions budget to to help to to do that. And then we have some some granting and some. Uh, some businesses as well. We don't have any government funding at all.
2: So you, you do rely heavily on churches then?
3: This, we this do. faith is very important. We do, we
7: rely on God to work through those people uh, mm-hmm. to, to support and to do his work.
3: But in, you provide services for all interdenominational groups.
7: We right? do, we provide services for anybody in the area. Um, I'll give you a little history, if that would work out for you. Uh, Root Cellar has been around for about 28 years. It was actually started by a small Mennonite group up on Munjoy Hill. And uh, it started out in the dirt floor basement of a house. That's that's the name Root Cellar. That's where that came from. And it was a teen drop-in center. And uh, as the teenagers came, and it was a place for them to get off the streets. And back in the day, I think it was 1994, U.S. News and World Report actually came out with an article and. Portland was the second-largest white slum in the United States. Quite a moniker for us. Wait, but what year is that? 94.
2: That wasn't that long ago. It
7: wasn't that long ago. And a lot of the, that's changed a lot, in, the, especially on the Hill neighborhood with gentrification that has happened, and that's changed. And also in around 2000, when we became a refugee resettlement site through Catholic Charities, uh, it, it became quite mixed in the area as well. So we can't use that moniker any longer. But as the kids were dropping in, uh, their little brothers and sisters would hang outside waiting for them to come out, and then the children's programs began. And after that started, uh, there was a local bakery that gave some day-old bread, and that began our food program. And from there, it just continued to grow and grow, and uh, we're in the building we are now on Washington Avenue, which was built in 2001. There were about four locations right in the area that we actually inhabited until we're in the place that we are now. And now there's there's food distribution, there's clothing distribution, there's dental, there's medical. Uh, this is all for marginalized folks who don't have enough to, to get these things for on their own. Jesus, uh, in one of his stories he was telling people, um, and he was uh, kind of speaking about who was with him and who was not going to be with him at the end of time, uh, during this judgment time. And what he did was he said, um, you uh, helped me when I was in prison. You gave me water to drink. You clothed me when I was naked. You gave me food when I was hungry. And, uh, and the people asked him, well, when did we do this for you? And he said, well, if you, as long, much as you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. And, and that is our our call and that's what we want to do. So we want to see him in every eye we look at and I was to talking to you guys earlier uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, during our Christmas time we have a Christmas Angel program where people adopt kids from the community and these are families that can't quite afford gifts for their kids so uh, we bring them out to all the different churches and some businesses and organizations and they help to uh, buy gifts, bring them in and uh, on that day we were distributing about uh, gifts to about to help out about 700 kids um, that were in that time. So that's an example. And when we have uh, we feed about 120 families each Friday.
2: Well, it sounds like there's a lot of different ways that people can help out. We'll
7: absolutely direct
2: them to your website. And we appreciate all the good work that you're doing for the city of Portland.
7: Fantastic. Thank you for having me.
2: Each week on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast, we read from our daily tread. Our daily tread represents a give back that is dear to my heart. As I've mentioned multiple times, Our Daily Tread was written in honor of my Bowdoin College classmate, Hanley Denning, who died almost five years ago this month. Her organization, Safe Passage, provides approximately 550 children with education, social services, and the chance to move beyond the poverty their families have faced for generations at the Guatemala City Dump. Visit them online at safepassage.org. Today's quote is from George Bernard Shaw, This is the true joy in life, the being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one, the being thoroughly worn out before you are thrown on the scrap heap, the being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clot of ailments and grievances complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. Today's Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast was based on the theme, Celebration. In exploring the theme celebration, we spoke with Kate Braystrup, best-selling author of Here If You Need Me, and more recently the book Beginner's Grace. We heard music from the group Mr. Moon, and we finished with a give-back segment about the root seller. We hope that you are able to find inspiration from the Dr. Lisa Radio RM podcast this week and every week. We hope that you will spend time on our website, drlisa.org, like us on our Facebook page, and send us your feedback. Let us know what you're getting out of the show and what you might like to hear. We hope that you're celebrating with us. Thank you for being part of our world. May you have a bountiful life.
0: The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the generous support of the following sponsors. Main Magazine, Tom Shepard of Hersey, Gardner, Shepard & Eaton, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin at Remax Heritage, Robin Hodgkin at Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine, the University of New England, UNE, and Akari. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded in downtown Portland at the offices of Maine Magazine on 75 Market Street. It is produced by Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belial, Editorial content produced by Chris Cast and Genevieve Morgan. Audio production and original music by John McCain. For more information on our hosts, production team, main magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, visit us online at drlisa.org. Tune in every Sunday at 11 a.m. For the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour on WLOB Portland, Maine, 1310 AM or streaming wlobradio.com. Podcasts are available at drlisa.org.